Thank you.
Amen. That's a great song. What a message. Amen. Kaylee did such a good job on that tonight. Let's take our Bibles and uh, I'll tell you what, look over at the book of Isaiah chapter 11 real quickly. Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to, uh, again, do a very brief summary and then we're going to jump into some new stuff. But um, I'll tell you what, why don't you just turn to Revelation 19. Let's just turn there instead, all right? Revelation 19. So we asked the question uh, a number of weeks ago. We said, have the Jews been replaced as a nation by the Gentiles and as God's people by the church? And the answer, of course, was no. Uh, It's just not the case. As a matter of fact, Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 1 says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? And he answers, God forbid. And of course, in Hosea 3, 4, we note that uh, the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, it says. There's going to be a time here where there's, they're, they're doing without their king. But hold on a second. That's not the end of the uh, story at all. As a matter of fact, we said they're going to experience a future restoration. And that's where uh, Isaiah 11:11 comes into play, where it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand upon uh, uh, again, excuse me, set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. And we saw that he did indeed... Uh, rescue his people or recover his people during the first, uh, you know, the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity, but we're going to see the second time here when he recovers them again. And so there's another time coming. Then also, not only will they experience a future restoration, we said they'll experience a total restoration, and we saw that, of course, in the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, and then also the two sticks in the one hand showing the... uh, unified nation again, all back together again. And then, of course, we said all Israel will be assembled and come together. And uh, that's where we kind of entered into the tribulation. We talked a little bit about that as they'll be unconverted there. They're still going to be unconverted during that period of time. They're going to be being judged during that time. And then, of course, we ended by saying they're going to cry out to God. And uh, so that judgment that they're going to receive, that being out there in the wilderness wandering about again, even as they were for 40 years and 40, uh, 40 years in the wilderness in the Old Testament, we'll see that they once again will be out in the wilderness for three and a half years as Antichrist and the uh, powers that be will be chasing them about, seeking to destroy and wreck and ruin them. And yet we're going to see from that point on at that very moment that Christ is going to return. And so that's where we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 19. And so we're going to begin tonight talking about the Jew again, just like we've been talking about, uh, and uh, their future. And so we want to pick up where we left off with Christ will return. So again, they have been, they're, they're unconverted now. They're in the tribulation period. They're being judged, as we noted already, in the tribulation period. And they're going to cry out to God. And then Christ is going to return. And so let's go ahead and uh, have a quick word of prayer. And in chapter 19, we're going to begin in verse 11. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, for your leadership tonight. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through the word of God. May we be encouraged tonight. Thank you for the beautiful music we've heard from the choir. Then, Lord, also from our special, Lord, just for the congregational singing. Father, for the prayer time that we experienced and were able to participate in. And now, Lord, may we, Father, listen with Father, truly, ears that, uh, of understanding, may you, Father, fill us with your spirit and help us, Father, to uh, help me to speak with spiritual uh, lips and, Father, help us to hear with spiritual ears and, 
Lord, may we take home something that will encourage us and help us in this day and age in which we live. Now, Lord, we'll thank you for that. We'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. So here in Revelation chapter 19, John says that he saw heaven opened. Now, when we think about something being opened, you know, we think, uh, most often we think about something like a door or a window, Uh, you know, go open the window or go open that door, and and we understand that. Now, I want you to notice something in Psalm chapter 78. The Bible says in Psalm 78, 23, though he had commanded the clouds from above and opened the doors of heaven. In the book of Psalms, again, we see this phrase, open the doors, this time of heaven. And so in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, we're seeing something to do with heaven being opened. And here in chapter 78, we notice some doors, and this door actually leads to heaven. So from our passage, it would appear that there are doors that can be opened, and if open, they can be shut to heaven. I personally believe that heaven's as real a place as this place is. Okay, I just do, okay? And I believe there are literally doors that enter into it. Now, someone says, well, it's a different dimension. It's this or it's that. Maybe. I don't know all the details, but I think if you'd fly north long enough, you'd run into heaven. I believe that. And again, the universe, the universe is very uh, vast. We understand that. But, you know, God is above that. I mean, he created it all. He's above all of that as well. If you could, and, and again, science wants to say that the universe is virtually, you know, and from our perspective, you know, it would be considered infantile, or not infantile, but infinite. But uh, it's not. We know that. There's, there's parameters. There's limits. And uh, it would ultimately lead us to God. And I do believe there are doors. And you say, really? I do, absolutely. <clears throat> the first time we see this, these doors is in Revelation 19, 11. And again, or excuse me, not, I'm, I'm sorry, is in, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Turn to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. So again, in the book of Revelation... <clears throat> We see in uh, these doors being opened in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 now. The Bible says there, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. Okay, so now we see a door opened in heaven again. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will shew thee things which must be hereafter. Now, we're seeing here a couple of things taking place. In this particular passage... John is being taken up into heaven. And the apostle John, of course, is recognized as the apostle to the church. Peter's the apostle to the Jew. Paul's the apostle to the Gentile. And again, as we said, John is representative of the church here. And in chapter 4, we're we're witnessing a type of the rapture of the church at the end of the church age. So we're seeing doors open. Now, in chapter 4, verse 1, a door is being opened, and we see John going up, which is representative of the church, and guess what? The church is going up as well. That is prior to the tribulation period. You and I won't spend a moment in the tribulation period. We'll be gone, of course. We'll be translated. Now, he's gone up. Now, the next time we see a door taking place or opening, we're going to see it in chapter 19 when the Lord returns again. So what we have is the second coming of Jesus Christ represented in two stages. 
The first stage is the rapture of the church. We see it pictured in Revelation chapter 4. We see it described to us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as well. But what we see here is the first stage of the second coming of Christ. The rapture of the church. Christ comes in the clouds. We go up to meet him in the air. Then we have the second stage of this second coming, which is Christ literally coming to the earth. He arrives at the earth. That's the chapter 19 part. Each time there's a door being opened, each time heaven is open. Heaven is opened in chapter 4 of Revelation as we go up. Chapter 19, heaven is opened again as Christ comes back and comes down, and we come back with him. So we have the second coming. It's in two stages, the rapture and what's called the revelation. Two stages, one second coming. And again, that's why there's so much confusion, as we've mentioned in past studies, as a result of, of, of the fact that there's two stages to one coming. And so sometimes prophecies get a little bit twisted and people misunderstand which one it's talking about and when it's talking about the rapture versus the, the revelation or the revelation versus the rapture. And uh, yet we see that many of them kind of apply in, to some degree uh, to both at times. So in Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Now, that's the second coming. That's Christ is returning now. The Jew has been in the tribulation period now since we've been taken out, chapter 4, Revelation. The book of Revelation, chapter 4, right on through chapter 18 to chapter right into the beginning of 19 has been the tribulation period. And now we have the return of Christ. Those Jews have been being persecuted. They've been being judged. And now Christ returns. And um, Zechariah chapter 14, interestingly enough, shares some details about Israel and his return. Turn in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4 there, would you? <clears throat> We're going to see Christ is returning. And we often have read chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, but sometimes we fail to read maybe some of the prophecies that were given to us about his return and how it will affect others. Well, we're going to see how it's going to affect the earth itself. Notice what the Bible says here in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. <clears throat> it says there in this particular passage, and his feet... Zechariah 14, 4, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. Again, we've talked about this, we've mentioned it before, in that day. That day, the day of the Lord, all right? The day of the Lord. It's following now this tribulation period. Jesus Christ is returning. This is chapter 19 return. This is the revelation, not the rapture now. He's coming back, second stage of the second coming. Here it is now, seven years after we've gone up, then now Christ is coming back with us. Here it is. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. So what Zechariah saw, Zechariah saw the Lord's feet standing on the Mount of Olives. Hey, by the way, that's the place from which he ascended back to heaven, too. Now he, said, he said, listen, I'm going back, and I, the same way I'm leaving, I'm coming back. Well, guess what? He's coming back, and he's going to 
land, so to speak, right back here on the Mount of Olives again. And in this particular case, the moment his feet touch the ground, when he returns to the earth, that is, the Mount of Olives is going to split and a valley's going to appear. And that valley's going to run east and west. And so half the mountain is going to be removed to the north and half uh, to the south. I mean, there's going to be, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's going to be crazy. You know, like we talk about the flood and we talk about how cataclysmic the flood was and how it changed the physical earth. Can I tell you, I believe that this event is going to do the same thing to some degree or another, at least in the Middle East. It's going to affect the, the, the actual physical characteristics of that area. It's going to change things. The, currently, the Dead Sea is so far below sea level that water just simply can't run out of it. And as a result of that, the Dead Sea is 8.6 times saltier than any other saltwater body. If you, um, you know, you think about buoyancy, you go into the ocean and, and you, uh, you float more in the ocean than you would in a, 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 a you know, in saltwater, you float more than you do in, say, regular, uh, say, lake water, all right, non-salted water. Uh, if you go to the Dead Sea, Man, you're, you're just floating on top. It's like, you know, I mean, because it's 8.6 times more salty than any other uh, water bo- uh, body of water. And so the salt also keeps it from sustaining life as a whole. Uh, that makes it the Dead Sea. So one day, though, when Christ returns, all that's going to change. The Bible talks about how water will once again flow out of that sea. Well, how's that going to happen unless there's some physical transformation that takes place? Well, when Jesus returns and the mountains split, there's going to be, if it sounds almost like an earthquake to me, things are going to happen and that sea is going to rise back up and water will once again start to flow from it. There's going to be changes made. And then there's going to be a lot of things happening there in the Middle East as far as crops and the ability to grow things. It'll be like it used to be. It'll be amazing what God's going to do there in those days. Now, here's a little thought that I want you to think about for just a minute. When you and I only take in, when all we do is receive, when all we do is get, but never give back out, you're just as dead as the Dead Sea. I'm just as dead as the Dead Sea. Boy, I'll tell you what, one of the dangers in the church today, I think, as we move forward in the future is, is going to be people not wanting to plug in. It's, we've gotten comfortable. It's nice to be fed. It's nice for somebody to do for me. I want someone to meet every need of my family. I want everybody to meet the needs of my children. I want everybody to meet the needs of my wife and myself. And that's great. Okay, so meet my needs. Meet my needs. Take in, take in, take in. Teach me the Bible. Give me the word of God. Take in, take in. Well, the Dead Sea takes in all the time, but it never gives out. And as a result, it's as dead as a doornail. Again, I tell you, there's no difference between a sea or a person that takes in but never gives out. See, living is giving. Until we learn to give like we ought to give, we don't know what living is. When we become selfish and we don't share our time, our energy, our talents, our gold with others, we're useless to God. And we are, in essence, dead men walking. Boy, don't be a taker, be a giver. I'm not just talking about your money. I'm talking about your life, your time, 
your energy. Talking about giving yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and giving yourself to others. Giving yourself through the local church. Don't be a taker. Be a giver. And that's true in every area of your life. And so what we find now is that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. And interestingly enough, the Bible tells us that Israel or the Jew is going to look upon him. Look, if you would, again, we're in Zechariah. You're over in chapter 14. Turn back to chapter 12, verse 10. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and it shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Boy, I'll tell you what, there's going to be a change of heart now. First of all, we're going to see here, they're going to look upon him whom they pierced. They said, you know, let his blood be upon us and our children. They stood there that day before the cross and they watched him be pierced. They watched them drive the nails into his hands and his feet. They watched him raise him up between heaven and earth. They watched as all this transpired and took place. The Bible says that the Jew or, the, or Israel is going to, to look upon him whom they'd pierced. They're going to see him once again. They're going to see him, the crucified Savior. He's coming back. They're going to mourn. They're going to realize, wow, he was indeed Messiah. They're going to look upon him. But also, the Bible says they're going to be saved as a nation or born in a day. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8. Turn there, would you please? Again, as we uh, remember in our past studies, we know that in the Old Testament, God dealt with nations. In the New Testament today, he deals with individuals. When you and I as a church are raptured out, he will begin to deal with nations again. As a matter of fact, we recognize that because when he returns, there's going to be the, the sheep and the goat nation judgment, if you will. Those nations that sought to help Israel will pass on into the the millennium. Those that did not will not make it. Again, he's dealing with nations now. And, And so here we're going to see that as a nation, Israel is going to be saved as in a day. Notice what it says here in Isaiah 66, 8. Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such a thing? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Man, I'm telling you, the prophecy is simply stating and implying that Israel's going to look upon him whom they have pierced, and their heart will be broken, and they are going to enter into fellowship with God and be restored. They're going to be saved as in a day. It's all going to change like that. Can I tell you that in the Christian life, one of the things that we have failed to remember too often is that we are changed in a moment. That we are not who we used to be. We are no longer the creatures we were. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. 
This idea that someone's coming to Jesus Christ and nothing has changed in their life, there's no evidence of salvation, my friend, you ought to be weary of that. If in your life you can get away with the same sin that you were committing before you were saved without the conviction that drives you to your knees ultimately or ultimately problems arise in your life that bring you to a place where you say, man, God is on my back, then friend, you better start questioning whether or not you're his child. You say, you shouldn't try to get us to doubt because nobody knows if I'm saved but me. That's exactly right. But friend, if you have the Holy Spirit of God living in your life, if you've been changed into that new creature, you have the divine nature within you, there ought to be something uniquely different about you now than there was before you came to Christ. That's not preached much today. But I'm going to tell you what, it's pretty biblical. As a matter of fact, we see a nation now that's coming to Christ in a day. And the truth is, they're going to mourn for him. And this truth is, they're going to recognize we really made a mistake. We really messed up. And that some things are going to change as a nation. We're going to see it happen now. Because not only do we see here in this particular passage that they're going to look upon him, not only do we recognize in these prophecies that they're going to be saved as a nation, born in a day, that they're going to have fellowship with God and be restored, but they are going to keep his commandments. Look, if you would, over in Ezekiel chapter 36. As you're turning over there to Ezekiel chapter 36, I want to read a passage in the book of Romans chapter 11. The Apostle Paul addressed this issue of them being born, so to speak, in a day, being born quickly, it, it taking place almost instantaneously. In Romans eleven twenty six and 27, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Man, I tell you what, he's addressing the same passage that we just read about in Isaiah 66. He's confirming for us this reality that when Jesus Christ returns, although they've been living in a wicked way, although they've been punished and they've endured uh, God's wrath during the tribulation period, they begin to cry out to God. He returns and man, they see him whom they pierced. The Bible says, can be saved in a day. Saved is in a day. It's going to take place quickly, fast, immediately. Notice what happens now in Ezekiel 36. They're going to keep his commandments. 36 verse 24. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Yes, that process has already begun. We know that. He's already begun to gather them back. We know that. But they have not been cleansed because they're not all back in their land where they belong yet. That sprinkling of that clean water upon you, he says, ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Watch this. He goes on to say, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. That a flesh doesn't mean sinful flesh. It's talking about one that's tender-hearted. 
And he says here, And I will pour my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. As I read through this passage, I don't know about you, but I underlined a number of things, and I got to thinking to myself, he says, I will take you from, out, uh, uh, take you from among the heathen. He goes on to say, um, I sprinkle clean water upon you. He goes on to say, uh, a new heart also will I give you, a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I think about everything God's doing here. Just for a moment. I mean, think about that for a moment. It, it, it's so crazy. It sounds like he's doing all the work, doesn't it? I mean, that's what it, it seems like to me. I mean, the Lord's doing all the work here. I mean, here's these people that have turned their back on him for all these centuries Millenniums even. I mean, they had chosen to worship idols. They've given their life to sin and, and they've not acknowledged Him as Savior and Lord. And yet, just like that, God's going to, going to restore them and He's going to put in their heart something new, a new desire, a new spirit. He's going to put within them a, 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 just an amazing transformation that takes place. He does all that. I want you to think about what God has done for you the day you came to Christ. I'll tell you what, we do not consider what he did for us enough. We look past it and we say things like, well, you know, I got saved that day. What does that mean? Can you give me five things that happened the very day you got saved? Can you tell me five things that happened to you the day you got saved that, that were not the case prior to salvation? Five simple things. Give me five things that God did in your life the very day you got saved. And I'm going to tell you something. If you can't answer that, and don't listen. I don't want you to raise your hand and say, I know five things. I don't care. But if you don't know five things, you ought to study your Bible more. Because you can't possibly appreciate what God has given you until you can put a finger and point to what God has done. And neither can I. I mean, we, we, we say things like, I'm saved. Well, what does that mean? Does, do you know what that means? How does that apply to your daily life? How does it affect your thinking? How does it affect your walk? How does it affect your attitude and your outlook? How does God say it ought to affect us? Not how do we decide it affects us, but how does God say it should affect us? I'm, I'm just saying that when the Lord comes back, he says they're going to keep my commandments. And you know what? It seems like the way they can keep his commandments is because he's going to sprinkle them with clean water. He's going to make them clean. He's going to put a new heart in them. He's going to give them a new spirit. He's going to take away that stony heart and give them one that is tender hearted. And he's going to put his spirit in them and he's going to cause them to walk in his statutes. Well, that sounds a lot like what he did the day I got saved. But is that really being exercised in my life? How about yours? If God did all that stuff for us, how should our life be different than it is? How much more should we appreciate what he did for us and be willing to sacrifice for him? 
like he did for us. Look, if you would, at Ezekiel chapter 37, just a chapter over. Notice he goes ahead and he kind of continues to build on this a little bit. There's going to be some things they're not going to do now. I mean, if you look at the history of the people of God or Israel, you're going to find that idolatry played a very significant role in their lives. But notice here in this particular passage how he addresses this issue. He says right off the bat in chapter 37, verse 23 and 24, neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols. Would we agree that, it is, it, that, that idols defile us? <laughs> Before we answer, think about things now. I, I want you to think about this. We're going to say on the on, on our top of, off the top of our heads. Oh yeah, of course. That's I mean, without a doubt. I mean, the Bible says that they defiled themselves with idols. Well, let's let's go ahead and ask ourselves a couple questions. What are some idols today? Oh, I know none of us are going to bow down to these little plants. Oh, poinsettia. Oh, poinsettia. Protect me. We won't do that. But we'll memorize sports stats before we memorize the Word of God. We'll memorize movie lines before we memorize John 3.16, so to speak. Or a passage that's going to help us overcome sin in our life. We'll spend more time thinking about our vacation than we do how we're going to serve in VBS. Oh, but that's different. You've got to take care of your family. Anybody ever tell you not to? Last time I checked, there ain't no better place for a family to be born or raised in than the house of God. Amen. If there's one thing I don't regret, it's having my children planted here and growing here. There's a lot of things I may eventually regret down the road maybe, but that won't be one of them. I'm just saying, you better think. We need to think. Is it, does it defile us? These idols, do they defile us? And what does it mean to be defiled? When we read our Bibles, we need to start asking ourselves basic questions. Instead of assuming we just understand what we're reading, we need to ask ourselves, what's that mean? What does it mean to be defiled? If I said to, my, to, to you today, I said, man, you've been defiled by your actions. What am I saying? Hmm. What you did defiled you. I'm telling you, I don't know that we understand what the Bible says because we'll say, well, it's archaic. We need to change it. Every generation is going to have to see the same thing, and if it stays the same for every generation, then every generation has a, a place to start. If we keep changing the word of God at every generation, then nobody will ever know what the original meaning was or the original point was. Because words change. Okay, let's change this word to cool. Well, what does it mean? Does it mean it's cool to touch? Does it mean it's cool, man? Or does it mean Fonzie? Hey, cool. I mean, what does it mean? 
The Bible outlet puts things in a position. That's why the King James Bible is so unique and so different than any of these other versions that are coming out that change the word of God. Why? The devil wants the word to change because then you'll lose your, we used to say in in scripture, there's a chain that you follow. You take words and you study them through the Bible. If one word changes, you lose, one word changes, you lose the chain. And then you can't get the complete meaning. And that's what has to happen in our lives. We have to study the word and understand what God means by these words. I just think these verses are so unbelievably power-packed and they're so important because we look at Israel so many times and we look at their past and we judge them based on their actions and attitudes, which of course surely can be done because it's pretty evident that they broke the word of God and we can say they didn't live according to the word of God. But then when it comes to us, we are much less critical, more, less critical of ourselves than we are of them. And yet we have more than even they have or had then one day they're going to get basically what we have, pretty much. But can I tell you this? Whether you know this or not, do you know that none of them will ever be part of the body of Christ? Just I'd throw that out there because I want you to know how privileged we are today. You show me where any Jew that's saved in the tribulation period is part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, I should say. You'll never find it. There's not one Old Testament saint that is. We are part of the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ as the New Testament church. We sit in such a privileged position, I can't even begin to describe to you how privileged it is. And by the word, privileged is not a bad word, even though our society is telling you it is. It's not. I guarantee you one thing, my children were privileged compared to yours. What I mean by that is, I gave my kids a lot more than I gave yours because they're mine. Doesn't make me a bad person because those are my kids, right? I should treat them differently than your kids. And you should treat yours different than you treat mine in that sense. Nobody's going to buy all my kids their Christmas gifts for Christmas. I have to do that. And I look at my children, I say, you know what? Those are my kids. I looked at my grandbabies, and those are the only ones that are good-looking babies. But not really true. There are some good-looking babies, but not many. But anyway, okay, you, you know what I'm saying. But anyway, um, so they're going to keep his commandments. Boy, he, and, and as we close that section out, just that portion, he says, they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. What's that passage in the Bible? I wonder if you can remind me what it is. He, he says, and they're going to do them. Let's see. Be what? Be not, what is it? Be. Oh, don't, don't be, yeah, don't just be what? Here's it would be what? Be doers. Oh, that's the verse. That's in the Bible. That's right. And so you're to be not just a hearer, but a doer. And look what they're going to do. Man, isn't that something? Israel had a history of only hearing and not doing. You know? And you know what? Sadly enough, I have a history of that. I have a history of it. But I certainly don't want that to be the norm. I want it to be the exception to the rule. 
Matter of fact, it shouldn't happen at all. But being a human, sometimes things don't turn out the way they probably should because I'm not everything I ought to be all the time. Now, they will occupy the land promised to Abraham. They will occupy the land promised to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, verse 18 says this, in, that, in the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. God's going to place them in the promised land. And you can read Ezekiel chapter 48, and guess what? You'll read about that. And then finally, he's going to provide them with a king. He's going to give them a king. The kingdom is one of the primary themes in Matthew's gospel. When you read about the, um, see, the kingdom of heaven, you'll find the kingdom of heaven mentioned 33 times in the book of Matthew. It's only mentioned in the book of Matthew. It's never mentioned anywhere else in the Bible but Matthew. And then you find the kingdom of God. And if we're not careful, we may think somehow that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing. They are not. One is a physical kingdom. The other is a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is a physical, a visible, physical kingdom. You know what that is? Christ on earth, ruling and reigning in the millennium. Matthew addresses this physical kingdom because God intended that Israel be a part of that physical kingdom. Remember, they were looking for that kingdom. In chapter 1 of the book of Acts, verse 6, they say, when, when, when are, when's it going to happen, Lord? When, when is the kingdom going to come into play? And he says, man, you guys got it all wrong. Listen, you just need to do what you're told and get the job done. But, hey, he didn't get upset with them because he just said, listen, just get it done. You got it wrong, but just keep on going, guys. Why? Because that's exactly what he had promised them, a physical kingdom. That's how Matthew addresses it so much. Not only that, but it's interesting in the book of Matthew, there's another phrase that seems to pop up quite a bit. It's the phrase, son of David. This phrase, son of David. Again, Jesus is Israel's promised king and one who's going to rule on the throne of David. His position, that position is rightfully God's, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, in the book of Matthew, we see it used often. The term's used 10 times in Matthew alone. Do you know that that's five more times than it's used anywhere else in the Bible? Again, we have this kingdom of heaven, and we have the son of David in the book of Matthew being emphasized. Once again, Christ is going to be the king. Christ is coming to sit on the throne. And that king is the king of the Jew. And ultimately, he will sit on the throne of David and rule and reign as he was intended to do. He was rejected, but he's coming back again. He came a lamb, he's coming back a lion. And he will not be denied. And uh, he is the Messiah that was promised. Now, you and I today, as we close this, this lesson, if you will, we who know Christ as our Savior and our Lord have already gotten a foretaste of this experience through the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ one day will rule on the throne of David. But for you and I who know Christ and have entered into the kingdom of God, have been baptized into the body of Christ, Christ rules on our heart, in our hearts. 
He's on the throne room of our heart now. He takes his place on the throne of our life. Now, we can choose to allow him to rule or we can choose to rule ourselves. But the fact is, is he's already been there. And if you and I have yielded ourselves to his rulership at all, we understand and can say, we know what it is to have Christ ruling. We know the peace that abounds in the life of someone who's put Christ on the throne because he lives in us. We know the, 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 the confidence and the strength and the purpose and, uh, that, that he gives to those who know him and uh, in whose lives he reigns. So we see that correlation there as well. So Israel, what's going to happen with them? We've already talked about it. God's going to use them again. He's going to elevate them again. He's going to place them in a very prominent role. He's going to give to them everything that he promised along the way. And again, there's some other things we were going to talk about, but we don't have enough time, and we're going to close this out. But, boy, I'll tell you what, we need to submit to the king today in our own life. You know, it's easy for us to look at Israel and say, boy, those guys, man, they need to yield. Yeah, so do we. We have Christ, if we are saved, living in us. Let's make sure that we're putting him on the throne now. Just because he lives in us doesn't mean that he has authority over us. He could at any time take that and say, guess what? I'm done. I'm doing what I'm going to do. But, you know, it's interesting. He hasn't done this lately for me. Uh, This has been a while. But But he doesn't, I don't just say, you know what, Lord, I'm not getting out of bed. And he goes, yeah, you are. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't want to go to work today. Yes, you are. I ain't going, Lord. He don't make me do anything. He doesn't control this body that way. Satan may do that, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? You and I have to yield to him and allow him to have leadership in our life. Boy, we've experienced him firsthand, if you know him today. Boy, he's worthy of our praise and he's worthy of our allegiance. And we need to trust him and we need to let him have preeminence in our life and sit on the throne and rule and reign. He rightly deserves that. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for the time that we've had in your word. We thank you for the simplicity of it. And Lord, we understand, Lord, that Israel has, uh, has got a future, a big future, a glorious future yet ahead. Lord, they're going to go through some rough times. But Lord, they're going to w- wake up to the reality that Christ is indeed Messiah. And then you are going to sit on the throne of David and rule and reign and elevate them amongst the nations. But Father, for us today, you've already moved in if we know Christ is our Savior. And Lord, you want to rule and reign on the throne of our life too. Help us, Father, to, do, to allow you to do that, to consciously give you permission to do so. I mean, you, we know you don't really need any permission. You're, you can do with us as you please, but Lord, you have given us that privilege to choose, to want to do it voluntarily. Lord, help us to make the right decisions and not to with, withhold ourselves or to hold back, but to give you our all. Lord, we'll thank you. We'll praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed tonight.